Good morning. You might be wondering, what is that guy up doing up there so soon? We're supposed to sing some more songs. But we're mixing it up a little bit today. Mixing it up. Just going to do a couple little sermons, short sermons on the sacraments today. So yes, today is a super special day, as we've already talked about. Um, and we've been looking forward to this day as it approached. We've had it on our calendar for... I don't know, probably 12 weeks, 13 weeks. But any time that uh, you plan for a baptism and communion on the same day, and then you throw in Reformation Day on top of that, it's going to be a good day. So, and as the last few weeks of this uh, series on the church that we've been going through over the last time, we've been focusing on the purpose of the church, the worship of the church. What is the aim of our worship? Through sound theological teaching, sound biblical truth in the music, all the elements of our worship here on any given Sunday has to be God-honoring. That honor is not only to happen in the planning and all of the things that go on here in the background to get ready. There's a lot that happens just to get any Sunday going here. A lot of that happens, but... Um, that preparation and the, all that has to happen also in the hearts of the worshipers, too. We observe the sacraments first and foremost because they are commanded by the scriptures in God, in the scriptures by God. He instituted them. Christ instituted them himself. They are a means of grace. In addition to his ordinances, his word and prayer, the things through which God gives us grace these are the ways that God communicates to us the benefits of his redemption. And without getting into how many sacraments exist, according to what denomination seems them, deems them necessary and valid, we observe two sacraments here based on scripture. It's plain to us in scripture that there's two we're to be in obedience to. And these sacraments are intended to represent Christ and his benefits, and they set an obvious distinction between those who are part of the visible church, that's us, and the rest of the world. So first we're going to take a look at baptism. And Christ was talking to the eleven just, just after his resurrection, just before his ascension into heaven. Matthew 28, 18 says, And Jesus came to them, came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. This authority was established by Christ. He didn't assume it. It was given to him by the Father after he was raised, by the dead, raised from the dead. It was given back to him in a sense because as God originally, he possessed that authority in heaven. All power was his, but when he became the mediator on our behalf, he humbled himself when he came to this earth. And he set that power aside in order to relate to humanity. And we find that in Philippians chapter 2. He had the ability and authority to forgive sins as the God-man during his ministry here on earth. And that's why the Jewish lawmakers were so annoyed with him. His authority was inaugurated verbally to the 11 apostles to show he rules over all which covers heaven and earth. There is no domain that isn't under his rule. 
it encompasses the whole universe, and there will never be anything or place not under his authority. Baptism is reserved for genuine believers. He said, go, not only in the form of a command, but it was also a word of encouragement and confidence to go and make those disciples. And that was the focus of Pastor Sean's sermon a few weeks ago, in which he explained so well our responsibility for sharing the gospel and making disciples. And then the next part of the command was to baptize those disciples, those followers of Christ. The passage in the Gospel of Mark says it a bit different. It says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Notice it doesn't say whoever isn't baptized will be condemned. It says those who don't believe will be condemned. If we don't believe baptism is required for salvation. If that were so, we would have to come up with an explanation for the repentant thief on the cross. It is reserved for those who profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him. And in addition to that, if baptism is required for salvation, wouldn't that provide a false sense of security for the person who looks to that as a work that they have done in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, but then they never confess Jesus as Lord? What if that person who decided to get baptized in a moment of regret when confronted with the reality of going to hell. They didn't understand the work that Christ did in our place, but assumed they were saved because they were part of a religious ritual. I think we would be surprised how many people are going through life, not in any way, shape, or form, walking in obedience, but they cling to a prayer that they said years ago, or they were baptized earlier in life without any knowledge of what that meant. And while on the subject... Often we are asked the question, I was baptized when I was a baby or when I was real young. And then they say, did it take? (laughs) The only way to theologically answer that is with another question. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? And I'm not sure how to explain if it took or not. What we need is to have been taken by him swept off our feet by him, no longer standing on our own merit, yet walking in faith, walking in the spirit, because of him alone, standing on the promises of Christ our King. Another good question that people do ask is, do I need to be baptized since I didn't understand what it meant the first time? We often baptize those who have been either baptized at a young age or baptized in a church that didn't teach truth. That salvation is by grace through faith because of Christ alone. But it also needs to be mentioned, repeated baptism over and over again. If one thinks it regains favor with God because of old patterns of sin and guilt that creep in, that dilutes the meaning and simply means there is a need for repentance. Possibly answers are needed to more questions regarding what salvation is, but not another baptism. Baptism is to be done in the name of God, not a man or a church. Christ instructed the apostles to baptize in the name of the triune God. It is to be done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We aren't baptized into the names of the Father 
of the Son of the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct persons. They are co-equal in one substance. This is to whom through baptism we are giving an oath to renounce the flesh and the world and the giving of ourselves to him. It is done under the authority of heaven, not man. Even though someone, we're up here and we execute that, someone has to do that part. But that authority is the authority of it, the authenticity of it isn't through the man. And this is why Paul clearly explained in 1 Corinthians the reason he didn't want credit for baptizing believers. He baptized very few of those from the church in Corinth. He was actually thankful to God for it because he didn't want anyone to have any reason to look at him as someone to be followed. He only pointed people to Christ and the power of the cross. And he didn't want anyone looking down, looking at him with any kind of carnal, fleshly, endearing tendencies that would take their focus off from the Lord. So this word baptized, and again, I'm, I'm not a Greek scholar, so, but translating that word from Greek into English for definition purposes, it means to immerse for a religious ceremony. It's a washing with water to make things dipped, make fully wet. It is the outward sign of the new covenant. And covenants that were made between God and the patriarchs in the Old Testament all pointed to the new, te- new covenant in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, there were ceremonial washings which were connected with purification, not only from physical diseases, but a connection was made with the purification from sin. John the Baptist's ministry was a baptism of repentance up until Christ's ministry on earth was inaugurated by John's reluctant baptism of him. Baptism, the washing in and of itself, didn't and can't cleanse anyone from their sin. It was designed to help us understand the need for purification from sin. And now it is a declaration of understanding that we have been washed, clean from the stain of sin, washed in the blood of the Lamb. And as you well know here, we do baptism by immersion here which we're going to see here in a bit, people are going to get wet. (laughs) And while there has been debate by many very godly men over the centuries, taking in the whole counsel of Scripture, Old and New Testament, as to whether to sprinkle or to pour or to dip all the way into the water, we take the Scriptures at face value. The scriptures that describe Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist, the wording goes like this, immediately he went up from the water, and when he came up out of the water, and many were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. There isn't an actual written method as to how John performed baptism, and I will admit that sprinkling thing, it's not near as much of a hassle. But we're going to go, yeah, it didn't take. (laughs) But we're going to go with what we believe to be demonstrated in the scriptures and the accounts of the gospels. But I do want to say, I'm not saying that the godly men over the centuries arrived at their methods of baptism outside of the scriptures. I know they arrived at their conclusions with great conviction from the scriptures. It just shows the effectiveness isn't so much in the method as it is in the meaning. 
And one element that can't be compromised in it, though, is the water, that representation of that cleansing. The use of water on the outside mirrors what the Holy Spirit does on the inside with his grace. It signifies cleanliness. That image of placing someone under the water, relating it to Christ's burial and raising up out of the water, relating to his resurrection, that is a picture worth keeping. And there are some things that are practiced with great sincerity, yet seemingly vast differences based on conviction of a particular scripture. These matters of whether we dip or we sprinkle or we pour. For example, some churches believe that you can't use any musical instruments during their worship time. Some people will only sing hymns during their worship time. And could we say with confidence that their worship without instruments or the singing of hymns is wrong or unpleasing to the Lord? We can't say that. We have to understand there's room for grace in these matters. And someday we'll get to see those things more clearly. But by the time that, by the time that comes, I don't think we're going to be concerned about these things. And baptism isn't limited by our surroundings. What about the location? Are we supposed to practice baptism inside? Outside? Is it supposed to be done in a large, heated, concrete baptismal or a hot tub that we've built into the stage back here with some ornate tile work? (laughs) Is it supposed to happen in a lake? Or in a river? In a pond? In a creek? And don't be critical of how I said creek. (laughs) Or crick. (laughs) But that's what I was baptized in years ago as a very young boy. Happened to be just enough water in that creek. There was a hole there. We had enough water, so that's where I was baptized, just across the highway from my grandparents' home. Is it of any less significance if it happens in a kiddie pool in a backyard? What if it happens in a livestock tank within the confines of a prison surrounded by razor wire? And when we moved into this building, we didn't plan on performing baptisms here. We always just looked forward to going down to the Spokane River once a year during August when we had a chance to get into the water without icing up. But earlier this year, during the later part of winter, we thought it best to change it up when someone asked to be baptized. And it became evident to make them wait until August really wasn't feasible any longer. So we came up with a plan. And just in case you didn't know, what we have here inside this box is just a livestock tank. That's all that's in there. By the way, Brother Daryl built this nice wood box around that, but it was fun when we tested it. And I can attest that day, it wasn't just a little below freezing. That was during one of the real cold snaps that we had. It was cold that day, and I thought he was absolutely nuts for doing that, but he just jumped right in there. And then what about the water quality? 
What if your clothes ended up being more dirty when you came out of the water after you were baptized? Would that in any way discount or lessen the effectiveness? Would we be willing to jump into that muddy water? In this next picture, these saints don't seem to be too concerned with the water quality. And who knows what could be lurking around in that water right there they're getting ready to step into. But this picture shows that our preconceived ideas of what we would be comfortable with is of no importance. We find that the cleanliness inside of the heart of a believer overshadows what is going on around us if we be found with Christ in us. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, it hasn't anything to, it hasn't anything to do with the environment or conditions on the outside, but it has everything to do with what took place and what is taking place inside the heart of a believer. So what is the heart condition? The relationship between us and our Savior, the work that he did for us, becomes evident on the outside of what used to be corrupt. What used to be a hard, cold stone of a heart has become a soft, pliable heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What is the purpose of baptism? It's the solemn admission of a person being baptized into the visible church. It's a sign of the covenant of grace, a sign of one's engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins. It is a declaration of giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in this newness of life. It's a signature of our justification and the whole work of redemption, which is signed and sealed in the promises of God. It's a profession to be holy with our whole being and only the Lord's. And then following the command to be baptized, it's an act of obedience to the words that Christ, of Christ that we just read. Through the reading and preaching of God's word, we who are the redeemed are to take the word in. We should want to take it in. There should be a thirst for it. And if you're here today and you make the claim that you're a believer, but you have no desire to take in the word of God and no aptness to follow Christ, that is cause for concern. If there's no inclination to obey Christ or his mandates, the concept of eternity in heaven may not be in your future. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And if you are someone who has truly been regenerated, there should be a natural, not natural to man, but let's say natural to the new man, an attraction, not only to God's word, but to the practice of it and in obedience to him. 
Baptism is for the benefit of the church body. It confirms not only in the interest of things pertaining to God and his love of the one being baptized, but also in the hearts of the audience, those in observance of it. It is to be sincere, but it's also supposed to be a celebration. There's a question in the Westminster Larger Catechism that asks, how is your baptism to be improved by us? How is our baptism, excuse me, how is our baptism to be improved by us? The answer is long, but I can't say it any better. It says, the needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation and, we are, and when we are present at the administration of it to others. By serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it, and of it, the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed in thereby, and our solemn vow made therein, by being humbled for our sin defilement, our falling short of, and walking contrary to the grace of baptism, and our engagements, by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin, and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized for the mortifying of sin and the quickening of grace and by endeavoring to live by faith and to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those that have been therein given up their names to Christ and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same spirit into one body. So, given that, we may as well not delay the inevitable. <laughs> we have a few here uh, that want to be baptized today, and that's part of our celebration today. We had a few in the first service. I think we have more of this service ready to go. So anyways, Pastor Sean and Pastor Daryl, they're going to be taking on the next part here. <laughs> 